Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning, good afternoon. Uh, for me, it's good morning. For you, I think it's beginning to be the afternoon. My watch still says it's 10.30. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here, uh, the World Affairs Council and uh, the Jewish American uh, Committee. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, Iran's nuclear program, but I want to um, begin by uh, saying a few words about uh, the comments you just heard in terms of the baffling conditions that the United States faces in the Middle East. Uh, one of the things that I have tried to portray in some detail in the book on the Shah is that um, we oftentimes have what I think is a Cold War image of what the United States has been doing in the Middle East. In a sense, we have the kind of uh, uh, view that the United States has simply uh, supported despotic regimes in that region that has been interested only in selling arms and buying cheap oil from them. Uh, they have been interested in buying cheap oil. They have been interested in selling arms. That's absolutely true. But it is also true, and often not recognized, that the United States has been pushing many of these countries uh, for many years to democratize. I can tell you with some certainty, uh, because I have looked at the archival material, uh, the, the book is based on something like 50,000 pages of uh, archival material, many of them only recently declassified. My talk on the nuclear program is essentially based on materials that were declassified literally seven, eight months ago. The book was late in going to print because I discovered this new catch of material, and they point again to a remarkably different story than what we generally imagine to be the history of Iran's nuclear program, and I'll tell you why the reality is different. Uh, in that record, uh, one comes away, uh, I think, uh, surprised at how much the United States was trying to pressure the Shah to democratize. The only exception to the post-war presidents who dealt with the Shah, that is from FDR to Jimmy Carter, the Shah who dealt with all of these, had relationships sometimes closer with Eisenhower and Nixon, for example, sometimes tense relationships with the, Nixon, uh, with the Kennedy brothers, for example, intense uh, rivalry, uh, and intense uh, uh, competition, uh, but he had relationships with all of them. And with the exception of the Nixon era, uh, and Nixon era decided to stop what had been a systematic attempt by the U.S. government to have the Shah to democratize this system. American diplomats had been telling the Shah, literally from Roosevelt's days, that if you want to survive, you are going to have to become a constitutional monarch. Uh, the Shah, after 65, no longer needed American money. Uh, he now was beginning to get flush with cash. 
he began to no longer listen to them. Uh, during the Nixon era, uh, the Nixon doctrine was put in place. Uh, the Nixon doctrine decided that the United States is overextended militarily and that the United States must strengthen local allies in to, to become local uh, policemen for their regions. Iran became the policeman for the Persian Gulf, according to the Nixon doctrine. Again, I, I show in the book that it wasn't Nixon that essentially chose Iran. It was the Shah that convinced Nixon that he should be chosen uh, and that Iran was the most uh, qualified candidate to be the powerful p force in the Persian Gulf. Uh, with that exception, every uh, president had been telling the Shah uh, that you need to democratize, that you're not going to survive if you have a one-man rule. After 65, with every year, Iran's oil revenues increased, and the Shah's willingness to listen to the Americans decreased. When there was most needed to democratize, which was in 1970s, which was the era where some of the Shah's reforms were bearing fruit, Iran was beginning to have a middle class. Iran was beginning to have a large technocratic class. Iran was having hundreds of thousands of students in colleges, something that did not exist in 1925, for example, when the Pahlavi dynasty took over. There wasn't a single university in Iran. By 1975, there were 124 universities. You cannot rule the country that you have modernized in the manner of an oriental despot. He kept being told, he kept telling them that you don't understand Iran, I understand Iran better, and he paid the price. And we all paid the price. We Iranians paid the price because of his policies, uh, the only force that was on the horizon capable of holding the country together were the clergy. Again, as I argue in the book, the Shah essentially eliminated the middle moderate forces in Iranian politics. There was nobody allowed to organize. The only force that was allowed to organize, in fact, encouraged to organize, during the Shah's 37-year under reign, were the clergy. They were the only ones who were allowed to have their offices. They were the ones to allowed to have their education systems. They were allowed to build the mosque in every neighborhood. The statistics and the number of mosques and seminaries built in Iran in the last 10 years of the Shah's rule is more than any other period for which we have the statistics. The Shah did it because he believed, it was common in those era to believe that, that his main enemy are the communists and his allies are the religious forces. So he eliminated the communists, he eliminated the, the Democrats, and allowed the religious forces to become the antidote to communism. What he failed to realize, and what many countries in the Middle East are failing to realize, is that while, while what the United States realized in Afghanistan is that while radical religious forces might be an ally against communism, they are at least as dangerous for international peace and for democracy as the communists were. It is a medicine more dangerous than the uh, illness it wants to cure. Uh, but the Shah realized this too late. Uh, the United States realized this too late in Afghanistan. M many of the other Muslim countries in the Middle East are beginning to pay f the price for the same kinds of policies. Uh, Egypt 
if Egypt uh, becomes a democracy, a democracy, it isn't because of the wise policies of Hosni Mubarak. It will be only because the U.S. has trained the military, and the military is going to be the only bulwark I see against the rise of radical Islam in Egypt. And um, Egypt is a pivotal moment. If Egypt goes uh, by way of radical Islam, I think we are in for a long, hot summer. If Egypt, on the other hand, becomes democratic, then you have two of the three critical states in the Middle East, Iran, Turkey, and Egypt. Two of them are more or less democratic. And I think then we can begin to think about having entered uh, the post-radical Islam era. I think the days of the bin Ladens are ending. The, the days of radical Islamic rule, I think, is in decline. They have had their chance. They have been in power for 30 years, and they have made an utter mess of it. Uh, and the rest of the uh, region, I think, uh, is benefiting from Iranian experience with this disastrous 30-year. Uh, and it, it has been disastrous, and uh, Iran really lost an enormous opportunity to become uh, an industrializing nation. To give you a sense of what Iran has lost, let me just tell you this, and then I'll begin talking about the nuclear program. 1975, in almost every indicator, Iran was comparable with Turkey and South Korea. In many indicators, Iran was ahead of Turkey. Look at where Turkey is today, look at where South Korea is today, and look at where Iran is today. Iran is virtually begging Turkey to invest in uh, Iran. Turkey has become Iran's biggest savior and is helping prop up this regime uh, that is increasingly under international sanction. So the lost opportunity to become a South Korea, to become a Korea, uh, Turkey, is what this revolution, I think, has cost the Iranian people. And if Iran had gone the way it was supposed to be, and have no doubt about it, I have made the argument very in great detail in the book, the Iranian revolution of 1979 was not, was not intended to create a theocracy in Iran. Khomeini completely hid his agenda from the people. In the three months before the revolution, Khomeini repeatedly claimed that he would not have any role in power, that he would go and become a seminarian. You look at the slogans, you look at who was the leader of the movement at the time. The 1979 movement was a democratic movement. Iran was intended to become a democracy, and that was usurped, that revolution, that democratic revolution was usurped by Khomeini and his allies, and instead we got one of the worst theocracy, uh, despotisms in the world, where to go against the regime today is not just political sin, but it is sin against God, as the regime repeatedly claims. The uh, regime apologists have recently literally said that to go against harmony is to go against God because harmony represents God on earth. So un, uh, seating the regime is going to be difficult. Uh, Iran is comparable, I think, only to Libya in terms of the tenacity of the regime uh, in holding to power and willingness to exercise brutality to stay in power. Three million people came to the streets of Tehran about 18 months ago, in June 2009. Three million people and demonstrated for uh, a more democratic Iran. Two weeks ago, in the last two weeks, there have been again repeated demonstrations. 
but the regime has very brutally suppressed them. It has put the leaders of the democratic movement in, under house arrest. It has arrested, by its own admission, 1,500 people. Several people have been killed. And the regime has gotten away with it because the news out of Egypt, the news out of Tunisia, the news out of Libya has completely overshadowed what they have done in Iran. But I don't think they are going to be able to forever forestall what I think is a foregone conclusion, that Iran will be a more democratic society. Uh, Iran has every prerequisite for a democratic transition, and this regime is delaying what I think is a, a foregone, at least for me, conclusion. And we can talk about this if you want. I can tell you why I think it's a foregone conclusion. About the nuclear program, uh, if you understand the origins of the nuclear program, I think we will understand a great deal why the uh, impasse that we are uh, has come about. Iran's nuclear program essentially begins with the uh, reactor, a very small reactor, that the Eisenhower administration gives to Iran as a gift in 1959. 1959 was the era of atoms for peace. And I remember very clearly going to school one day and seeing these posters on walls all over Tehran. It, uh, those days, television was just coming. It was very novel. No, nobody had it. And the only visual way of uh, conveying something was these posters. And the posters showed Eisenhower standing on a firmament, the Shah standing on another firmament. They were shaking hands. Under there, there was the logo of a nuclear power. And underneath this was a village that was glowing with light and science and discovery and says, Adams for peace, a gift of America. That's how it began. The Shah basically did nothing with it. Uh, by 1971, the Shah had more money than he literally knew what to do with. In 1974, he went on what the CIA calls a lending binge and gave away $1.4 billion. Iran gave away money to London to fix its water system, for example. Anybody who came begging, the Shah was willing to give. Uh, but by 1971, he was also becoming, as I said, as a result of England departing from the Persian Gulf and uh, the Nixon Doctrine, Iran was becoming the hegemonic force in the Persian Gulf. This was something that done with absolute uh, agreement with, of the United States. Britain was not on board. Uh, the two countries that were most uh, actively supporting of this were Israel and the United States. Iran was Israel's most important ally in that period. Uh, Iran recognized Israel in 1950, and they had very close military ties, very close uh, intelligence ties, very close economic ties, diplomatic ties. Uh, the ambassador, the Israeli ambassador, uh, was afforded all the rights of an ambassador, but was simply called the head of an economic mission because Iran did not de jure recognize Israel. Iran was a de facto recognizing <coughs> Israel at the time. Uh, and was with Turkey the only Muslim country to do so. Uh, and Israel realized that the Shah was its most important, most reliable ally. So Israel was very much for Iran getting uh, a, a military uh, aid. Many times you see in the documents, you see that the U.S. Uh, presidents, for example, are reluctant to sell uh, the Shah weaponry 
that the Shah wants, and it is the Israeli government that comes and intervenes on behalf of the Shah and tells uh, the U.S. president that this is your most important ally, help him. The same was about the nuclear. Uh, the Shah decided in 72 that he was going to have a nuclear program. In very short order, uh, and again I have described this in the book, within two weeks he decides that a 13-page plan written by someone, one person, his name is Akbar Etamot, is going to be the blueprint for Iran's nuclear program. The blueprint called for Iran having 20 nuclear reactors, uh, 20 re reactors within a 20-year cycle. Uh, the Shah had promised Kissinger that Iran would buy at least eight of these reactors from the United States. That's why American companies were very eager to begin selling Iran these reactors. Westinghouse hired Helms, the one-time head of the CIA, one-time ambassador to Iran, as its representative to pressure the government of the United States government to sell what the Shah wanted. Here is a very important part of the history. Contrary to what you probably have heard, contrary to what the regime in Iran has been saying for 30 years and nobody has for 25 years, and nobody has really challenged them, it is not true that the United States was willing to give the Shah everything he wanted on the nuclear. The Iranian regime has been saying now for 25 years that the United States is hypocrite. It was giving the Shah everything the Shah wanted. Now Iran wants to exercise the same rights and the United States is not uh, going along. And this is double standard, this is hypocrisy. This is not true. It's simply historically not true. The United States, very early on, begins to suspect that the Shah might have a bomb on his mind. The, they realized that the amount of investment that the Shah was making, particularly in the enrichment area, did not make sense for a peaceful nuclear program. Uh, and they told the Shah that they suspect him of having plans to build a bomb. And they stopped, the U.S. government stopped American companies from selling reactors to Iran, from selling nuclear technology to Iran. The companies were very much pressuring the White House. You can see this very clearly in the documents. And the White House was holding firm. The Ford administration was holding firm. The Carter administration was holding firm. They said, we want assurances that the Shah is not going to have a bomb. And the Shah was unwilling to give the assurances that the United States wanted to give. So you have almost four years of intense struggle between the United States and uh, Iran over the nuclear program. In the meantime, Europeans were very happy to sell Iran everything Iran wanted. They jumped on the market. Uh, Germany passed the law guaranteeing 100% the investment of any German company that would, spend, uh, would invest in Iran's nuclear program. Uh, so they were basically telling them, go in there, if you lose money, we pay uh, the damages, go get the money, go get the market. And they began getting the market. The French, the Germans, were the only ones who actually signed a nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, and the nuclear deal, uh, Siemens signed a deal with the Shah to build a nuclear reactor in the city of Boucher. Of the 20 envisioned reactors, only one was signed actually one agreement was signed. Uh, by the time the Carter administration, under pressure from the Defense Department and these companies, began to loosen its position, Iran was in turmoil. And the Shah was now 
preoccupied with domestic matters and left these negotiations essentially on hold. Khomeini comes to power. And the same way that the Shah unilaterally decided to have a nuclear program, Khomeini decided unilaterally that Iran doesn't need a nuclear program. Those of you who are worried about Iran's nuclear program, you should pray that Khomeini made that decision in 1979, because otherwise Iran would have had an enrichment capacity working in 1981. The Siemens uh, agreement <coughs> called for Iran to have a fully operational facility in Boucher in 1981. 75% of the work had been done. They go to Khomeini and say to him, look, 75% is done, let's finish this 25%. Khomeini says, the nuclear program is junk, the Shah was a lackey of the U.S., that's why he signed these agreements, we don't want it. And they told him that there are these facilities, he said, use them to store grain, use them as silos. Well, he didn't have to worry about using them as silos. The war with Iraq happened, and Saddam Hussein made sure to bomb them at least twice. Uh, and there was very little left of it. Iran having spent billions of dollars, all of it gone down the drain. Then in 1984, Iraq, in its war with Iran, used chemical weapons against Iranian soldiers. And the international community, to I think a shame, decided not to do anything about it. Saddam Hussein was virtually get, allowed to make this egregious breach of international law. And one of his arguments was remarkable in the sense of showing the kind of human being he was. He said, I haven't committed any international law. I use this against our own people. Uh, his argument was that we have used this on this side of the border, not on the other side of the border. He was lying on both accounts. Uh, uh, he had used it against Kurds and both sides of the border, and he had used it against Iranians. Uh, and the international community did nothing. Uh, the Reagan administration virtually did nothing. Again, some in the administration wanted the, Bush ad the Reagan administration to do more. Schultz, for example, was very much clear that first the Reagan administration should not deal with Iran and the Iran-Contra. Schultz was very much against that, uh, and he was overruled. And uh, on this issue, uh, he was amongst those who said that we should come down more heavily, more harshly on Saddam Hussein for using this. But it didn't happen. So the regime in Iran decided in 1984 to relaunch its nuclear program. But they decided this time that they were going to do it secretly, they're going to do it quickly, and they're going to do it with anybody who's willing to sell them. Uh, when they are asked why they decided to do it secretly, they say, we had seen what Israel had done to Iraq's nuclear facility at Osirak. Osirak was Iraq's sole nuclear facility, very much like Syria's sole nuclear facility. Israel went and bombed it, and, and there was ne nothing left of Osirak after that. They claimed that that's what they went secret. <coughs> and uh, they were very good at trying to keep it a secret for a few years. Uh, they took, we now know a great deal about how they did it secretly. There's a very interesting book called uh, Peddlers of Peril by David Albright, who's one of the best uh, scientists on the nuclear issue and has studied Iran very carefully. Uh, his outfit was one of the first to use satellite technology to actually map out everything that the regime was doing. Uh, and 
they began to build facilities in the heart of Tehran. They took a watch factory, for example, and transformed it to uh, enrichment, nuclear enrichment facility. Uh, they bought designs for uh, centrifuge from AQ Khan. AQ Khan had stolen the design from a Dutch company that he worked for. He brought it back to Pakistan and began to selling it to anybody who was willing to pay the money. The two biggest customers for him was Libya and Iran. Uh, Libya and Iran began to buy everything that he had to sell, amongst them the design for centrifuges. Iran began making centrifuges in secret, uh, including in a watch factory right in the middle of Tehran, and they began to build new facilities. In the city of Natanz, they went 25 feet underground and built a facility the size of three football fields. I think it's probably the size of your, uh, your uh, Dallas, Texas sta uh, uh, stadium. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard that it's very, very big. Like everything in Texas is big. <laughs> <coughs> uh, I think it's probably the size of two of stadiums, normally three soc uh, football fields, but two soc Dallas stadiums, uh, all underground, and with the capacity to have a centrifuge cascade of 50,000 centrifuges. Now, uh, if you're trying to enrich uranium, uh, you can be enriching it up to 3-4%, which is what a nuclear uh, reactor uses. You can be enriching it up to 20%, which is what a medical reactor uses. And you can be enriching it up to 90%, which is a bomb. No other use than a bomb. And 90% enriched uranium has only one use, a bomb. And if you want to build 20% uranium or 3% uranium, you don't need 50,000 uranium. Uh, centrifuges. If you build a center for 50,000 centrifuges, the message you're sending the world is that I am preparing to build a bomb. You can't expect anybody who knows anything about this, and I don't know anything much about, uh, I don't know anything about nuclear physics, but I know enough to know that if you build this, nobody is going to believe you that you have only a peaceful program in mind, because 50,000 centrifuges will give you enriched uranium that has only one use, the bomb. Uh, so the regime began to lie and cheat and prevaricate. Uh, initially, it denied that there was a Natanz. They were then shown satellite pictures that showed what was there before and what was there afterwards. Uh, they were shown satellite pictures that showed clearly the stages of building. They were told that we now have intelligence that when you were building this, you were using virtually every bit of cement that was available in the country. Cement was unavailable in Iran for several months, and nobody knew why. Now they knew in retrospect it was all going to Natanz to build this underground facility. Uh, and many other events, many other s stories that uh, are now fairly well documented, all pointing to one thing. There is, in my view, incontrovertible evidence that the Iranian regime is trying to become at least what is called a virtual nuclear state. A virtual nuclear state is what also the Shah was trying to become. We now know that. A virtual nuclear state is a state that has the in internationally recognized capacity to build a bomb if they want to, 
they have the technological know-how, but they haven't made the political decision to take that one last uh, stage, one last decision. In order to become a virtual nuclear state, you need to have shown that you can, centif you can build centrifuges. Iran has done that. You can enrich it to 90%. Iran has shown that it is building the capacity to do that. Uh, you have to have the capacity to deliver it. Iran is working feverishly to build missiles with the help of North Korea to have that delivery capacity. The fact that they haven't yet accomplished it simply means they're incompetent. Uh, and they are incompetent. I mean, the, the reactor that was supposed to be finished in 1981 is still not working. They have played they have paid the Russians several times more than what was supposed to cost. And the Russians have still not uh, turned it on. And worse or, uh, is that the Russians are now telling the international community that we are afraid to tell, turn this on because of a virus called Stuxnet. This was a virus most likely produced by a cooperation between the United States and Israel. Uh, it, we also we seem to know where it was designed. It was designed in Israel's Center for Nuclear Research. They built a replica of Iran's enrichment facilities, and they worked, and they worked, and they worked. They spent hundreds of scientific hours to design a virus that was introduced in the computer technologies for Iran's nuclear program. That technology, basically, what it does is that it disconnects the tie between the computers that control the centrifuges and the centrifuges. The centrifuges, if they shake a little more, if you've seen the China Syndrome, uh, you, you see the movie, you remember, if they shake a little more, everybody shakes, and they immediately turn it off. The computer does that. The minute it shakes, it turns it off. What this does is that it disrupts this connection. And either the computer is shaking too much and it is not turning it off, or it is turning it off before it is. Uh, it is now uh, estimated that of the 7,000 centrifuges Iran had working, at least 1,000 of them have been damaged by this uh, virus. And much of what the virus can do is still unknown. And it is dangerous enough that the Russians have now written a letter to NATO, written a letter to their own Russian government saying that this might be a Chernobyl waiting to happen. We should delay the opening till it is safe. So something that could have been a reality in 1982 with $3 billion, now after $30 billion probably is estimated to have cost even more because they're buying everything in the black market, they're paying double, triple the price, Russians are overcharging them, and Iran is one of the most corrupt governments in the world. Uh, there is this institution that measures corruption. Iran is in the bottom seven countries in terms of corruption. There are very few countries in the world, almost all of them in Africa, uh, I don't remember, but I think all of them except Iran are in Africa that are in that bottom seven drunk. These are the most corrupt governments. Every deal, somebody is taking a percentage or several people are taking a percentage. So that government has still not 
been able to do something it could have done in 1982. This would have brought down any government in any democracy. If you think about the failure of management of the, of the country's uh, resources, that would have brought down any country. But it hasn't because this regime is brutal and it is a state in power. So, of course, there's also the minor problem that Boucher, where the, the reactor is, is placed at one of the most dangerous earthquake uh, centers in Iran. It is at the place where two very lethal fault lines meet. And they knew it then. Uh, they spent at that time, they set aside at that time $5 million, I think, uh, which was a lot of money in 1972, uh, to make sure that the buildings are retrofitted for uh, earthquake, against earthquake. So you have a perfectly inadequate machinery bought in black market, much of it, and we now know that for several years now, at least for several years, Israel and the United States have both been working feverishly to make sure Iran does not get the material it needs. And if it's getting the material it needs, that uh, they are making sure it's not the right kind of material. Uh, uh, and at one time, the CIA even had the brilliant idea to sell Iran a faulty design for a bomb. Uh, Iranians were on the market for a bomb. Uh, and the CIA finds a Russian scientist to act as a conduit. Uh, and the Russian scientist was nosy enough that he looked at what he was passing. And before he passed it on, he told the Iranians, I think there's something wrong with this. You, you better check it. <laughs> and they ran back to Iran. I mean, we know all of this is documented. You know, they took a plane and immediately after getting the design, went back to Iran and... Uh, uh, but they did not apparently go down that path because they were told that this might be a faulty design. But it is one of those moments where you think, what the hell were these guys thinking? <laughs> Getting a Russian scientist to act as a conduit, it looks like a bad James Bond film. Uh, or an Indian version of a James Bond film. <laughs> now, uh, what would happen to the world if Iran does, in fact, uh, take that next step. Again, uh, there was a very controversial national intelligence estimate produced in 2007. The national intelligence estimate is a document prepared by every U.S. intelligence agency. They come together and they uh, put all of their brains and resources together and they prepare something for the President of the United States, for Congress, sometimes the Congress demands it. Uh, the person who was in charge of this in 2007 is now at Stanford. His name is Tom Finger, and I've had him to my class several times. He's been kind enough to come, and he's described the process of coming to that very controversial 2007 National Intelligence Estimate. That 2000 National Intelligence Estimate basically said that Iran had been trying to build the bomb up to 2003, but that every evidence we have since 2003 is that they have stopped only the weaponization part of the research. 2007 was the time where the Bush administration was thinking about going to war with Iraq. There was very much a fever that there might be another war. And the media picked only one aspect of this national intelligence estimate. The television papers, the only aspect of it they picked 
was that Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapons program. If they had read the entire documents, the entire documents says very clearly that they were trying to do it up to 2003. They have now, we can say, confidence, with some level of confidence, stopped. But they're going ahead with every other element of this. In other words, they're going full force ahead with the attempt to become a virtual nuclear state. If they become a virtual nuclear state, or if they take the next step, that is, make the decision to make the bomb, that mean, would mean, I think, an end to the NPT as we know it. The Non-Proliferation Treaty has been very successful, or relatively successful, in keeping the bomb, bomb out of uh, the hands of governments. It was an agreement signed by the countries that had the bomb that said to those countries that didn't that if you sign this agreement, we are willing to give you technology to build peaceful nuclear uh, technologies. All you have to do is promise not to build the bomb, and you have to promise to allow us inspections to make sure you're not building the bomb. That was what, what the MPT. And essentially, it has kept the bomb out of the countries, the only countries that have, uh, after the signing of the MPT, uh, broken out of this is North Korea, India, and Pakistan. Uh, China was never a signatory. India never signed. Pakistan never signed. But these are the countries that had it. Israel had the bomb before the MPT. Israel, by every indication, had the bomb as early as 1955. Had, at, at least had the, uh, they were working on having the capacity to build it. Israel never signed the MPT. Uh, on the one hand, I think it would mean the end of MPT. Because if Iran drops out of MPT, you can be sure that other countries in the region will do the same. Uh, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Egypt are on record at saying that if Iran becomes a nuclear state, they're going to be fast following suit. And if all of these countries have the bomb, uh, in what is one of the most unstable political uh, reg regions in the world, in what is one of the most disproportionately still despotic reg uh, regions of the world. It is a remarkable fact how little the wind of democracy has come to the Middle East. Since 1974, a hundred countries have become democratic, and there is an absolutely shockingly, surprisingly disproportionate low percentage of Muslim countries that have joined this. Uh, it's been almost all of it outside the Middle East. Uh, so in this kind of an unstable authoritarian regime, where a madman like Gaddafi or a madman like Saddam Hussein can come to power, Saddam Hussein used every weapon in his arsenal against Iran, including chemical weapons. If Israel had not destroyed Iraq's nuclear capacity, if Iraq had the nuclear capacity, in my mind, I have no doubt that Saddam Hussein would have used it. So in this kind of a responsible uh, environment, I think starting an uh, arms race is our, probably the worst fear. Uh, there is also the notion that uh, if this arms race gets started and these countries, more of these countries, have the bomb, the chance that one of these bombs will fall into the hands of a, a terrorist organization increases exponentially. Uh, I, my most urgent fear is not, 
Iran giving the bomb to a terrorist organization, uh, my most urgent fear is Pakistan falling into the wrong hands and into the wrong group. And the fact that Pakistan's intelligence agencies have known contacts with Taliban, known contacts with Al-Qaeda, that to me is very uh, worrisome. But the entire if the entire uh, region is engulfed in an arms race, uh, you're not only looking at the end of the MPT, but you're looking at a very dangerous area, having the capacity to do enormous damage. And I think nobody is the safer uh, for it. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.